You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. Okay, everybody, you're in luck. Longtime Democratic strategist and hmm, incredibly productive polymath, Simon Rosenberg, is here. In, in addition to... Right. Yeah. I mean, it's that's true. Right. Simon, I use nothing to do. It's absolutely right. You know, in addition to being consistently spot on in reading the political movement, um, Simon's a talented writer, a savvy entrepreneur, a tireless fighter for democratic values. And his latest effort is one of the best uses of the Substack platform imaginable. Uh, he created Hopium Chronicles, which you have to join. It, it, it's a newsletter, a community. It's full of resources that'll help you do your job, everybody, uh, this election cycle. Simon, welcome back. Edwin, it's great to be here. And, and I'm certainly going to re- take this recording and play it for my family, I think, later today. <laughs> but thank you so much. You bet. Well, c- could you take a uh, couple minutes and introduce yeah. everybody to what you're doing over at Hopium. Tell them how they can participate yeah. and the kinds of yeah. you know, fabulous resources you make available. No, I appreciate it. And, you know, I I think like a lot of your listeners, I, in 2022, I decided that I needed to be doing more. I needed to be making a bigger contribution, I, you know, that the threat to our democracy was so significant that even though I'm in the business professionally and have been I was working at a think tank. You know, there's there's limitations on speech due to my tax status. I couldn't be terribly partisan. And so I needed to find a vehicle that would allow me to be more effective at battling MAGA. And also, you know, I had met a lot of people in the last couple of years and the work I've been doing, and I wanted to be more connected to them. And so I've moved my work. I shut down a think tank that I've been running for many years to moved all my work to Substack. It's a powerful new platform. Uh, it uses audio and video and text. Very, uh, in, It's very interwoven and very powerful. I think it's a very powerful way to connect with information, but it's also uh, got great community tools. And I think the thing that's most exciting to me is the kind of community discussion that goes on every day, how people are helping each other learn how to volunteer, what races to get involved in, sharing ideas, learning from one another, and that's really been very gratifying for me. I mean, I, I feel very, as I joke with my family, I've got 20,000 new friends, and, um, and, they've, and they're great people, and I love hanging out with them. Yeah, I, that, I don't really know. I don't even have the language to talk yet about how Substack works, but the sharing vertical that you have is fabulous. Just people talking about what they're doing to help the democracy. It's really um uh, optimist, optimism uh, generating. Yeah, I mean, I think if I could say to your listeners, the key, the whole idea here, we call it Hopium Chronicles. Hopium was used as a slur against me in 2022 because I was I was smoking hopium about the Democratic Party's chances, but I turned out to be correct, right, in my assessment of what was going to happen in the election. And I like to think that hopium is hope with a plan. And in 2022, we just didn't hope the election was going to get better. We put our heads down, we went to work, and we changed history. I mean, the work that we did together, millions of proud patriots, people who love their country, who decided they're not going to let their democracy slip away, uh, went to work and made this election in 2022 far better than it would have been otherwise. We raised more money than people could believe. We had more volunteers. And there's this awakening that's happened in America, this citizen activism that I'm really trying to help 
connect with because I think it's the most powerful thing we have as Democrats today is just regular people going to work, fighting to make sure their democracy doesn't slip away. You've made that point, and, and I was last week one of my guests um, uh, made this a similar point in a different way. He was talking about how for a long time Democrats focused on rights. And the Supreme Court was a protector of all our rights. The Supreme Court has has opted not to be that anymore. And it's right. an, a moment for Democrats to go back to something we used to do, which is to say, focus on social progress and, and, and equality more broadly. And, and, and stop outsourcing all our work to the lawyers, but build the kinds of coalitions that we built 100 years ago that really changed America in dramatic and better ways. And I see that's, I mean, I see that starting now, whether you care about abortion or you care about the environment or you care about guns or you care about the democracy itself or you care about civil rights, these vastly um, different uh, sort of goals, everybody's coming together to form a wonderful coalition to move the country forward. Well, and I agree with you, and I do think that we – I like the way that you described it. I think that we have become overly reliant on, on lawyers for a lot of things in our politics, frankly, um, and on, on the Democratic side. And I think that part of what happened, Edwin, is that the barrier to entry for a regular person into politics has been lowered. I mean, you can now – you know, sit on a Zoom with someone like me and James Carbo or whomever, you know, whoever your favorite politician is while you're making dinner at night and listening to them talk. If, you know, many of these groups that I speak to have weekly meetings, right, where they have prominent Democrats speaking to them over Zoom. And what's happened is this this use of Zoom has allowed hundreds of thousands or even millions of people to get far more connected to the political discourse, to political activism in a way that is meaningful to them. And then what's also happened is that we now have this remote texting and phone calling technology, which allows you, you know, to live in California, but to make GOTV calls into Pennsylvania and Michigan, these things were never possible before. And so some of this is that there's been sort of a tactical, a change in the way that an average citizen can get engaged. And what's happening is people like it. They feel it's gratifying. They feel like big citizens. They feel like they're, tr- they're they're making their country better. And they're devoting more and more time to this rather than doing other things, right? I mean, we all have a lot of things we can be doing with our lives, like coaching Little League and making dinner and all the things that we do that are important to us. But what's happened is a whole lot of people have decided that this is their most important activity, and it's really made a huge difference. And it's also very kind of small d Democratic, to Tuckvillian, right? And one of the things I like mm-hmm. to say is that our politics is getting more democratic, small d democratic, more consistent with the values of our party, while the Republican Party, by the way, has become far more dependent on large contributions, a small number of people, and it's become really a politics of oligarchy. And, and so I think the way the two parties have organized their politics has now become deeply consistent with their actual values. In, in the political arena, which is that we're relying on everyday people to win our elections, and they're relying on 100 oligarchs. And our, system, our way of doing it is better, and it's one of the reasons that we're winning, because it's more consistent with the vision and the understanding of what our country should be. And I think we are far more 
I mean, I don't think the comparisons between our two parties any longer on their commitment to the traditional understanding of American democracy, it's not even a close call anymore. No. I mean, when you think that the Republican Party, which birthed here in, 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 well, in the the upper Midwest and, you know, put Lincoln as their first guy on the ballot here in my city, was the politics of we're going to preserve a democracy and and fight to do it when people want to have uh, want to dictate to the whole country by using this fake idea of popular sovereignty, right? And then secession, and that that, that same party is now the party. Of, I mean, I let me let me say this differently. I read about the recommendation of the grand jury that, that, that hasn't happened, but they recommended indicting Lindsey Graham and two former senators as part of. Uh, the plot to overturn the election in Georgia. And I I read it and I was heartbroken. It just made me so sad to think that one of the two great political parties in history, but it happened to be an American political party, is now dedicated to destroying democracy. On behalf of of interests that the public doesn't want, on behalf of fossil fuels and, and, you know, some uh, religious minority that really wants to control everything. I mean, just is heartbreaking. Listen, I, I wrote something consistent with what you were saying yesterday. And what I reminded my readers was that the party that it w- that is known for Lincoln and freeing the slaves and for Reagan, who helped end the Cold War, is, also, is now also going to be known as the party that tried to end American democracy forever. This is now forever part of the Republican story and what it is, because the effort to overturn the election in 20, uh, 2020 and 2021 was a party-wide effort. It involved hundreds of party leaders all across the country. Over a thousand people have already been successfully prosecuted. The next two to 300 people are going to be prosecuted, whether federally or in, or in the states, mm-hmm. are going to be Republican leaders like Lindsey Graham, like Ronna Romney McDaniel, who is likely to get prosecuted at some point because she's on camera, you know, telling everybody that she actually worked to recruit those fake electors. I mean, she's admitted in, in a in, under oath that she was a major participant in this illicit scheme to overturn the election and end American democracy. And I do think that part of what happened in the last six to eight weeks is the enormity and the gravity of all this is starting to sort of settle in, right, to people who study this stuff daily, you know, the, the, you know, the people who are analysts on this, Jack Smith and his prosecution of Trump, three of the four charges involved the word conspiracy, right? He established that there was a vast conspiracy, people who participated in the conspiracy at whatever level broke the law. And so what is likely now is there could be years and years of prosecutions of very prominent people. Lindsey Graham's not out of the woods. He's out of the woods today. Doesn't mean he doesn't yep. get prosecuted a year from now, two years from now, because he, there's already been a grand jury recommendation that he get indicted. I mean, that, that is now a permanent part of Lindsey Graham's life, whether he ends up getting prosecuted or not. So all these Republican leaders have extraordinary legal exposure. But the key is the thing that you said, Edwin, and I just want to repeat it, which is the awful, terrible reality now that we have that one of our two political parties has essentially seceded from American democracy, that they're no longer, you know, believe in the foundational principles of this country. They're contemptuous of democratic laws and norms. They're challenging them in every possible way all the time. 
and they essentially are no longer part of the Democratic West. And it is, and so I think there's already been sort of a soft secession that's already taken place, not a geographic one, but an ideological one. And, and it is, you know, and, and we have to recognize that that threat that the Republicans, the attempt to overturn the election in 2021 was probably the most serious threat to American democracy in our history. And we cannot in any way normalize this, put lipstick on this pig, right? Like whatever the phrase is, we have to stare at this, you know, as, as powerfully as we can and speak the truth to our fellow Americans about what this party has become and what the, the threat is. And I think this is going to become, you know, it's been the most important MAGA, the fear of MAGA has been the most powerful issue in our politics in 2018, 2020, and 2022. It's going to be the most powerful issue in 2024 because Donald, what is Donald, you know, I joke that Joe Biden's pitch to voters is going to be, hey, you know, I've worked really hard. I've made the country better. We're better off. I still got a bunch of things I want to do. If you elect me, here are the things I'm going to do. Donald Trump's pitch is going to be, I really, I tried really hard to end American democracy last time. And if you elect me, I'll get it done this time. Right. I mean, literally that's going to be the choice in front of us. Some version of that is going to be the actual choice that we have in 2024. And it's why I'm confident at the end of the day that we're going to win this election, hopefully win big and repudiate, send, have the story of this election be a massive repudiation of MAGA so that MAGA's grip on the Republican Party starts to loosen. So there's so much to unpack in, in this. Um, the uh, legal system is slow, right? So bringing the last yep. crop and the leaders to justice will take years, as you said, well past the yep. next election. Um, yep. You and I are both, we both lean to the progressive side. Um on policy, but I think both of us welcome uh, policy arguments with people who lean right of center, but love our country, just have different ideas about how to move us forward. So this really is less about, I mean, this current crowd, I I watched the Republican debate. There are no policy ideas. I mean, there are none. (laughs) This is not what this is about anymore. (laughs) So, you know, I don't know if, 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 conservatives in America who love our country and love our democracy can take back the Republican Party from the guys they gave it to. They may have to start a new party. Well, there's. let's talk about that for a minute, because given that you evoked the origins of the Republican Party a few minutes ago, right, there, there are a couple mm-hmm. of interesting challenges here. I mean, if we were in a parliamentary system, what would have already happened is that the Liz Cheney, never Trump or never MAGA wing you know, would have folded into the Biden coalition. She would have been in the cabinet, right? Bill Crystal may have gone into the cabinet. And, you know, we would have picked up six, seven, eight percent of the electorate. And we would be up in the mid 50s and we would be have, you know, be ahead in this election by 10, you know, points or more. But our system doesn't work that way. And and so, you know, we but I think that we have to temporarily as Democrats imagine that we have to do that create that kind of pro-democracy coalition with the never Trump and never MAGAs in some kind of formal slash informal way, right? We have to make them welcome in our family. They're on our side temporarily. I mean, I did podcast this week with Reed Galen and Joe Walsh, two former Republicans who are virulently anti-Trump and anti-MAGA, right? And I do it in part because just like I 
went on Fox News for 17 years and I wasn't paid. I wanted to demonstrate that Republicans and Democrats could have civil conversations on air. It was very important to me, right? And so I, I think keeping this dialogue open, as you're describing, and building this, this large pro-democracy majority coalition is really important. And But the challenge that we have is if you look at the latest morning console poll, Trump in the Republican prom, primary, Trump is at 60, DeSantis is at 15, and Vivek is at 8. So MAG is at 83 in the Republican Party right now, right? 83% of the primary audience is MAGA, 17% is non-MAGA. And the effort that it's going to take to shake loose and to give the Liz Cheney wing of the party an opportunity to take their party back, whether that can happen in 2025, whether that happens, you know, what the path is, I don't know. But what is what you have to understand is that in our political system, the Democrat and Republican parties, the Democratic and Republican parties are the only two parties in America by statute and by law. So there isn't, it isn't going to be easy. It's, it's why it's so hard to set up another party in our, in our system. Whereas in other countries, it's very easy to set up a new party. There's a, there's a legal duopoly that exists in the United States between the Democrats and the Republicans. And so I don't know that there's going to be an ability to set up something else. And that's why this fight over the leadership of the Republican Party after this election, if we end up winning by eight to 10 points, which is my hope and my aspiration, right, is, is going to be consequential, which is why we need to be building up the Liz Cheney wing of the party, because we, for the good of the country, we need them to be able to have more influence over what used to be called the Republican Party. And, you know, yep. these are, it, look, this is a deep, deeply challenging, your, your emotion that you spoke to earlier of sadness, a sense of tragedy, a sense of, you know, um, of, of, of danger, right, of threat, because of everything we just talked about, is it's there, right? I mean, one of our two political parties has gone, you know, batshit crazy and, and has become yep. an extremist and crazy force. And we don't, it's not, and because we have a two-party system by law, it, it's really more dangerous than it would be in almost any other country in the world because of that, right? And so, you know, we it's why though, Edwin, I, you know, I've written a piece that I think I talked about last time I was on called Get to 55, where I've challenged the Democrats to try to build a politics that gets us to 55% nationally, up from 51 last time. We yeah. win by 10 points, so it's a clear repudiation of MAGA, which would be good for the country, good for us, but also good for Republicans if we can, if we can do that. This conversation opens up the, you know, the, the question of why we're a two-party nation is interesting, and, and some of it's historical accident, but, but small parties are ideologically pure parties. They pick their thing, that's who they are. We went for big tent parties, in part because we're such a gigantic, diverse nation. Right. Instead of having a lot of bickering yeah. tribes focusing on one little issue that they care about more than anything else, we said, we'll sort it out in the primaries. We'll figure out how to have a big tent. And we Democrats still have a big tent. I mean, there's an enormous gap between Joe Manchin and Mayor Brandon Johnson of Chicago. Right. Yeah. An enormous, yeah. enormous amount of, uh, uh, I mean, there are things we share for sure. But there's big breadth there. The Republicans have, Donald Trump has, MAGA has, 
um, narrowed the current Republican Party, where they have an ideological set of, well, uh, they have a purity test. There's no ideology to it. It's a Trump test. Then you're either in it or you're out. And uh, and they've been able to enforce that through the primaries, as you said, 80 some percent of the primary voters are his. Yeah. Do what he says. So so it's it's asymmetric warfare in a way and very complicated. Yeah. Well, let me let me make two points to your listeners is that one is we are doing remarkably well, despite everything we just did and the fear that we have, you know, Democrats have, have, are not being paralyzed by fear. They're going to work, right? As we were discussing earlier, right? They're putting their head down. They're making the calls. They're writing the postcards. They're giving the money. They're doing the canvassing that we need to do. And, you know, we had an extraordinary election in 2022, despite high inflation and low Biden approval. You know, we actually gained ground from 2020 in yep. Arizona, Colorado, Georgia, Minnesota, Michigan, you know, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire. And we got to 59% in Colorado, 57% in Pennsylvania, 55 in Michigan, 54 in New Hampshire. We just got to 56 in Wisconsin, and we just got to 57 in Ohio, right, a few weeks ago. We continue to perform up in the mid to high 50s in the states that matter in this election, which is why I think so much more is possible for us now. And so this strong election that we had in 2022, where we overperformed expectations, we blew it out in the early vote, right? All the things that we did has carried over to this year. And we've had the wins in Wisconsin and Ohio. We had the wins in Jacksonville, Florida, and Colorado Springs. And uh, it was a state house race in Pennsylvania. We continue mm-hmm. to perform sort of at the upper end of what's possible. And so I just want to make sure that I want your listeners to know that at the core of where I think things are right now is that I'm deeply optimistic about our chances next year. I, I'm bullish on Joe Biden and the Democrats, regardless of what's happening with the polling right now, which is very early and I think not really reflective of very much. And I, I'm very bullish. I would much rather be us than them. And, and I, I think that I'm so bullish that I'm trying to imagine a politics where we get to, we win by 10 points and not just by four or five. And by the way, if we do that, then all these third-party efforts won't amount to anything, right? And, yep. and it's why our collective job right now is we've got to continue to, to amplify and build up the good works of Joe Biden and the Democrats and to help you know get his numbers up, get his approval in the economy up. If we do that, if we do two things, to me, there are two big things we need to do in the next six months, right, six to seven months. One is we've got to get Biden into a better place. We got to all collectively sell, go out and sell him to our networks, all you know, in any, any way that we can. And we also need to get very serious about registering young people and pushing youth turnout to the upper end of what's possible. If we can do those two things in a meaningful way in the next six months, I think it's going to really well. It's going to position us very well for the fall elections next year. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I might add a third. We still have to yep. protect. We still have to protect the, the – we can register all we want. We have to protect the vote. And there's some pretty serious efforts on the other side to undermine it right now. So I think we yep. have to do that too. But, um, you're capable of doing more than one thing at a time. And it's, it's evident in um, – with Democrats, things get better, which is one of the things you do. You tell the story of the good work that's being done. Um, when Democrats are in charge, and of keeping an eye on the uh, collapse, the disgrace of, of today's GOP. One of the reasons I was asked by a young person, uh, a 
recent, you know, a person in college, a brilliant young woman who wants to be for Joe Biden. But she says, Look, I just don't hear, you know, a lot of good stuff about him. And I started to give an answer about, she said, why is that? And I thought maybe it's fragmented press or where she's looking. But then I thought, you know, no, that's not it. There's only so much news time in the world. And this is the first president maybe ever whose entire term has been, the news cycle has been dominated by the guy who lost. Yeah. Right. I mean, so it's like, it, it, I, I make changes. We start to campaign, but the, but the, I don't want to pick on the media, even though they love Donald Trump. He breathes, he goes on the front page, um, or up on, you know, this, because it attracts, it's just interesting to Americans. I don't blame the media for this. And the idea that he's leading an insurrection to destroy the democracy. Well, that really is news. <laughs> it really is. But how, so, so how do we talk more? And you've got tools for this. How do we get into people's heads? The amazing accomplishments of what has truly been, um, I think, a more impactful administration than than President Obama's, um, than any president I can remember, really, frankly, in the in the massively yeah. good legislation and the and in the and in the uh, carrying out of that legislation with you know with with talent and skill. I I, I think that you know the way I just think about this is that. You know, I worked in the war room with James Carville and Stephanopoulos 31 yep. years ago. It's hard to believe it was that long ago. And, um, and, and, I, and I talk about how I think we need to reimagine the war room, that when we think of the war room in our mind's eye, we think of 20 sweaty kids drinking Red Bulls, producing TikTok videos, right, rapid response videos. And the way we need to really think about it is there need, we need to think of it as two or three million proud patriots network together amplifying, you know, the good works of the Democratic Party and Joe Biden every day. And let me just walk through the math of that, right? Tucker Carlson, at his heyday, was the most influential commentator in American politics with 3 million viewers a night. Imagine if 2 million people a day reach 10 people in their networks. That's 20 million people. That's a lot more than Tucker Carlson and Fox News reach. And I think that, you know, because oftentimes you people will say, well, the Democratic Party isn't messaging well. Why aren't you doing better? And I throw it back at people. I do the JFK line, right, which is not, you know, don't ask what mm -hmm. the Democratic Party is doing for you. What are you doing, right, to take responsibility for, you know, not allowing the, the noisy right to push us around in the daily discourse every day? And I think that we all have more agency in this process than people understand. It's why you have your radio show, and when it's why I yep. have my Substack, right, that we're doing it in our own way. But I'm granting permission today to all of your listeners to become information warriors for their democracy and, and to do it in whatever way is comfortable. People ask me all the time about this talking points and how do I know? Well, really, in some ways, what you should do is pick an issue that matters to you and get reasonably comfortable in it, right? And then spend time talking to people in your network about that. Because I think that we're too reliant on the concepts of talking points where we're just sort of spreading stuff that we don't really understand around. I think where real communication happens, where people connect and learn and are influenced, has to also come from passion and, and knowledge. And that that's where we want to get to. And so just, I, I'll tell you the story you asked about my Substack. The, the most gratifying posts that I get on my Substack are ones that go like this. And these are every week, right? Simon, I was at dinner with three of my friends the other night. 
And they were all dumping on Joe Biden and saying he was old and blah, blah, blah. And I used all your statistics that you give us every day. And I turned them around. And by the end of the dinner, they felt really good about Joe Biden. And we had a really pleasant dinner. And thank you so much for the, giving me the tools to make the case, you know, to persuade my friends and colleagues. So that was three people she reached. And See, that's imagine great. if a million people are doing that every week. We're more powerful than Tucker Carlson at that point, right? And and I also think that, you know, it creates a relationship for many average folks to their democracy, to the daily discourse that is healthier and more nutritional, right? And and where, you know, you feel like you're in this daily debate as opposed to being pushed around by it. And so I think there's so much more that we can do, that we all can do, just regular people. You and I, and when at the end of the day, we're just folks, right? We're just doing, you know, we created these platforms to reach more people, but everyone has a role to play in this. And I think where we've been expert and successful is channeling that kind of energy into campaigns, right? Raising money, building these unprecedentedly large grassroots efforts, which have allowed us to outperform all expectations in recent years. But we need to do a second thing, which is we need to become more intentional about going on offense in the daily information war and not allowing them to push us around as much as they do. And what that means to me, if I can make one last point, is that it's not about doing rapid response. The war room wasn't about rapid response. The war room was about winning the information war every day, going on offense, telling our story. And Democrats have to get better at and spend more time telling our story and not living in their headspace. Right? Don't allow their attacks, their you know, all the things that they do, we have to ignore that stuff more often now and spend more of our time putting positive sentiment into the discourse, responding to their negative sentiment with positive sentiment and telling our story. We have a powerful story to tell. Everyone has a role to play in helping that story be told all across the country. And that's part of the reason, again, when you and I are here today, right, is to help people yeah. become more, more effective patriots, uh, people that love their country and don't want to see democracy and freedom slip away on their watch, you know? The uh, person in the story you told who went to dinner with her or three friends, those three friends are then going to talk to somebody else. I mean, everybody's got to understand every one of these conversations is a pebble in a pond and it has waves. Right. And and, and, I mean, it's just uh, it's going to take we live in a networked um, society now. Right. There is no top down. You give a speech, everybody does it. That's not who we are. Everybody's got networks. It's not just technological. It's personal. And it's that's what that's the only thing at the end of the day that people anymore know to trust, because the rest of it is too strange. (laughs) So what you're doing. Yeah. No, no. Listen, I just want to put 18 exclamation points on what you just said. Right. Which is that. In the broadcast age, the television age, we were our the goal was to create couch potatoes, right? Literally, right? Your job was to sit on the couch and consume the media and just keep your ass on that couch, go get popcorn or whatever. In the networked and amplified age, you can take media and take information and share it through your networks. It's a completely different way of understanding the way the flow of information or our society. Mm-hmm. And you know, particularly because our coalition is so young, it's incredibly important that we are more active in putting this information into networks 
And, you know, I call it networks because it could be an email list. It could be, you know, a Slack group. It could be, what you know, a, a dinner group that you, a book club, right, that you get together with. It's all, these are all networks, right, of people. And it's to your point about young people is that we have not been doing a good enough job going and getting our information and our people into their networks. Um, and because it is, and, and to get young people to become advocates to their communities. When we do that, by the way, the Biden campaign, for example, in 2020 had an influencer campaign where they, you know, created a pool of people yep. that had large following on, on social media. They educated them. They gave them talking points. They gave them materials, that, which they used to. It was wildly successful. And this is the kind of stuff that has to happen every day, not just in the three months before an election, for us to be able to, to close what I call the loudness gap with the right, with Fox News and all the amplification tools that they have. I really think that we can make enormous strides in this in a very short period of time and and where we don't have to become reliant on Joe Biden himself. I mean, he's got, look, he's been a very good president, but he's going to need some help making his case. And that gives us something to do. Let's get to work. Let's put our head down and go do the work. Right? I mean, that's, that's what's Absolutely. exciting about this election is that there's a big role for everyone listening today. All of you have a big job to do in this election. Um, and how exciting is that, right? I mean, it, when you think back to other eras in our democracy, uh, and you don't have to go back as far as Lincoln, right? But, but people, <laughs> you know, the media made us all lazy, right? Because you could hear from the president every day. But most of it, you know, when we were building this democracy, the president was far away and you might get a telegram, you know, or read something in a paper right. a week later. The democracy required the people get out and talk to their neighbors and organize and organize to move us forward. And that's back where we we find ourselves in a, in a, in a really interesting way. We just organize a little differently. But it's so exciting. I just... As, as terrible as this threat is we're facing, I keep telling particularly young people who say, like, what do I do? Like, you're really lucky to be alive in a time where what you do matters. You know, I mean, what you yeah, do really look, matters. What, when we come out the other side of this, right, and it's not if, it's when we come out the other side of this, our democracy is going to be renewed and strengthened. And it's one of the reasons everyone hears our homework assignment for you, which is, we need to help Joe Biden build a big reform agenda. You need some big agenda to be able to say to the American people that I've been in Washington longer than most people. I know the city. And there are three or four things I'm going to do before I retire to clean up the mess and the corruption in the city and make this city work better for the American people. I'm going to strengthen our democracy. I'm going to clean up corruption, whatever the reform agenda, whatever the pieces are. We are in desperate need of something like that as a party, right? We need not just to rely on his foreign policy successes and his economic success and his, you know, his defense of, of reproductive health and all the other things that he's doing. We need to be able to go to the American people. He needs to be able to do, um, you know, a little, particularly because of the issues around his son, right? Is that he needs to be able to say, like, McC like McCain did after the savings and loans crisis, McCain became one of the most effective reformers of our political system in modern history because of yeah. his own troubles. And, and I think that um, Joe Biden needs to be able to go to the American people and say, in my second term, I'm going to do something that nobody else could do other than me because of my time and experience and my age. 
allows me to understand what really needs to be done to clean all this up. And I'm going to commit to you that before I leave office in, in 2028, that Washington will be cleaned up, our democracy will be strengthened, corruption will be challenged, right? All these things. I, I think this is a big piece that we've got to figure out together because um, I think it's re- it could become very, de- you know, defining for him. His first term is going to be defined by his economic investments and by his, you know, climate. to build a and new era. Climate and change. climate and yeah. his... Yeah, and to build a new era of foreign policy and climate change. Yep. The second term, I think, is going to there's going to have to be something that becomes very clear about strengthening our democracy, cleaning up a corrupt political system. Yep. Blah 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 blah. Yep. Which yep. I think would yep. be an incredibly powerful legacy for him. Yeah, and they, and you know, you and I can both admit that the corruption is not limited to the Republicans. I mean, I live in Illinois. You know, um, we right. have. Right. It, it is what it is. Um, and there are many things that reformers, and I've been one my whole life, have talked about that can that can help. Um, uh, it would be great to have a champion in the White House. And I think you're absolutely right. And I think I think he wants to do it. Um, I, it's what I've heard. Um, I just think it's it's enormously hard. The politics of it is enormously hard. But I think he has to campaign on it. And I hope he does. Listen, he got more done in his first two years than anybody, any of us thought he could, could, right? So we can't count him out. I mean, this is why, you know, I get asked about Biden's age all the time, right? And my answer is, you know, age, we know that his age is a liability, but it's also an asset, right? I mean, it's allowed him, he's the most experienced person to ever be in the office. He's, his, his age and his experience and his wisdom. And when, as somebody like me, who's formerly young, right, you know that with age comes experience, wisdom, capabilities that you didn't have as a young person. And well, I can. I know some actually, old people have never managed to get the memo. But yeah, it's, <laughs> <laughs> he's going to be running against but one. In, <laughs> but I think in Biden's case, his success is intimately tied in with his age, actually. I agree. And with that his age he's is a better president than been, he would have been 20 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And his age is actually an, uh, one of his assets. And I think we have to use that. We have to keep building on that. And he has to use his I, age and his time here to create this big that. reform agenda to go out. You know, anyway, that's just and people thinking. say, oh, maybe he's fine now. But in four years, he might be not in good shape. And I, I mean, somebody said that to me the other day. And I said, did you watch a Republican debate? Because you may think Biden may not be fine four years from now. Was there anybody you saw who you think would be fine five minutes from now? You know, Listen, no. I mean, David, David Brooks in the New York Times yesterday literally wrote, you know, Joe Biden has been so successful as a president that, you know, I don't care if this guy's 100 years old, if he's delivering these results on forum. This is David yeah. Brooks, right, a Republican yeah. columnist in the in yeah. the and it was an amazing I, I it was a shockingly smart. I mean, I was very proud of Brooks for writing that because obviously he was going so against the grain of his own party on that. Right. And so, you know, look, I, I think that, you know, I know we're at the end of our time here, Edwin, and I just yeah. want to say, first of all, thank you for what you do, your passion, your commitment, you know, the sort of the high quality um, discourse that you bring to your listeners. I'm really, it's a pleasure to be with you. And I, if I can just, you know, sort of close out here at the very end with just a note of just unrelenting optimism, you know, based on reality, not based on, you know, hopium, right? Based on 
the fact that we keep winning, we keep outperforming. Our grassroots is stronger than it's ever been. Joe Biden, you know, I have this exercise I do when I give my presentations where I say, I'm going to say three things now. Joe Biden has been a good president. The country is better off. The Democratic Party is strong. Period. No commas, no howevers, no buts, no semicolons. You know, these are declarative sentences, and we have to get better as Democrats in speaking in simple declarative sentences, not qualifying things like Joe Biden's been a good president, but Simon, what about all this stuff? When you do the but, you're doing MAGA's work for them. You're bringing MAGA's arguments into the daily discourse of the Democrats. And we have to get more disciplined about this because Joe Biden has been a really good president. The country is far better off. The investments that we've made in the future are going to keep America prosperous and growing for a, a generation. The climate investments, to your point, when I get asked about what will Joe Biden be remembered for 50 years from now, he's going to be the guy that may have turned the corner on climate change, right? And yeah, the world is going to end up becoming. Yeah, yeah, yeah he, he may be a world altering historic figure because yep. of the huge investments that we've made in climate. These things will all become more evident to voters. As the campaign begins, as the money gets spent, as they get more focused on making their arguments and not just governing every day, right? And and it's why I'm deeply optimistic about our opportunity next year. Um, but we have to do the work. And the only way we went now, we know, is not through Joe Biden campaigning well. That there's millions of people who've got to get up and go do the work over the next 14 months. And if we do that, you know, we're going to have a great election. And so I feel good about where we are. But obviously, we got a lot of work to do. Well, thank you uh, for your time. Thank you for the amazing uh, resources you make available to people for the com community that you have created and are growing. Um, I, look, I have a Substack page, but I can't really figure it out. You've really figured it out. And people should go, <laughs> you know, you can, you can search for Simon Rosenberg. You can search for Hopium Chronicles. Either way, Substack.com, you yep. find it. It's awesome. And it's free, by the way. It's free, and almost all of my content is free. I, I keep it that way. Some people have a lot of paid content. I have very little of my content is paid. So yep. if you subscribe for free, you get access to 90 95% of the material on the site. And if you want to join at 45 bucks a year, it helps fund you know, making the site better and more content. But we love... Free is great. Free is good. And, you know, it's, uh, it, and it's, uh, so anyway, Edwin, thank you so much for the opportunity and, and let's, you know, happy to come on whenever you need me. And I'm just really grateful for the sort of thoughtful, serious discourse that you're making available to your listeners and any way I can support you in your work. Just let me know. Okay. Thank you. I, I, I will reach out to you and we'll do it again. I may reach out to you offline on a couple of things too. Thank you so much. Okay. Okay. Yeah. See you everybody. Bye-bye. All right, everybody, the remarkable Simon Rosenberg. We're going to take a break for the news. Um, oh, and when we come back, we're going to just focus on a couple of states with this mindset that we now have. We'll go to Iowa next. Stay tuned. A healthy body needs a healthy mind to function properly. Mental health parity is the law requiring that your insurance coverage for mental health or substance use disorders be no more restrictive than coverage for your physical health. Health coverage is health coverage, whether it's for your physical or mental health. Whether you need surgery or treatment for depression, you're covered. Know your rights. Learn more about mental health parity laws at GetCoveredIllinois.gov. <laughs> 